This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 109. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. When you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, before we get to today's interview, just another quick reminder, Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020 in Las Vegas at Bally's Hotel and Casino. This is our annual investor conference, a little under two months away. And just wanted to remind you that registration is now open to go and register so that I can see you there in Vegas. Go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and click register now. Got many announcements coming up from, uh, you know, even more speakers, panel and, and agenda, as well as some of the uh, companies that are going to be there presenting at the event. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Brent Bishore, founder and CEO of Permanent Equity. Now, I've been a big fan of Brent's work for many years now, uh, from the success of Adventures, now, now called Permanent Equity, to his philosophy on business, investing, people, and life. You know, which he's really been kind enough to share on many of mine and most of your favorite podcasts over the years, as well as through his investor letters and essays. I was fortunate enough to see him speak at the Microcap Leadership Summit. Shout out to Ian and Mike on another great event, and everyone should register for the 2020 event. Really fantastic lineup of speakers again. And there he was actually interviewed by Morgan Housel. Uh, I provided that link in the description. You know, so quite frankly, I was just really stoked when he agreed to be interviewed by someone like me and, and it was, just, it was just very humbling. You know, so in this interview, we, we really cover a lot. His background, name change to permanent equity, how permanent equity's approach is different from typical private equity models, and why boring is beautiful, as the title might suggest. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 109 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and really please enjoy my interview with Brent Bishore. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap Podcast. The 2020 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me, maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast, to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit 
planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap Podcast. And with me today is the founder and CEO of Permanent Equity, Mr. Brent Beshore. Brent, it's an honor. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. You know, I, I last saw you, well, really to prepare for this interview, I listened to pretty much all your interviews, the one with that you did on Investing City with Ted Sides, of course, the four you've done with Patrick and, you know, I just... <laughs> My condolences. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm just I'm just really appreciative of you, you know, taking the time here and, and doing this. And I actually just, I saw you also uh, do the interview with Morgan at the uh, Microcap Club Leadership Summit, you know, yeah. shout out to Ian and Mike. And so, you know, uh, it's... It's a real pleasure, man. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. Cool. So, you know, I'm doing something a little different today. You know, I, I haven't done this before in, in the hundred some odd interviews I've done prior. And, and that's, I, I want to set a goal and intention today because I, I know you're very busy. And, you know, again, you've done a number of interviews and I, I really want to set that intention for my audience. And really our whole goal today is that, you know, I want to know how you've really uniquely positioned yourself to not only create a company like Permanent Equity and and carving out this niche in private equity, and also, you know, what investors who focus on investing in public markets can learn from your investing philosophy. So, hopefully, my questions kind of try and answer that. So, really, to start off here, you know, as we get into it, is let's get your background. You know, how'd you get your start in, and and really get to where you're at today? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a very odd uh, winding journey. So I uh, let's see, I, I started as an entrepreneur, uh, founded a couple of companies, and then uh, let's say accidentally bought a business as close to accidentally as you as you possibly can. Uh, so I did a, a private equity deal before I knew there's an industry called private equity. Um, never taken a finance class in my life, um, and um, and that's really been kind of part of the DNA of who we are. So we're you know, sort of operator first. Uh, we're not financial engineers. And I think that goes to the ethos of kind of what makes us very different. Um, so uh, just compounded my own capital for the better part of 10 years and then uh, raised a $50 million fund, uh, let's see here, a little over two years ago, and then just raised a, a second fund, uh, a larger second fund uh, that, that uh, closed in December. So um, yeah, we've got a portfolio of nine, uh, nine companies, um, really spans uh, the geography of the United States, as well as a lot of different industries. And um, I mean, the goal for us in the future is just pretty straightforward. We're going to keep doing more of what we're doing, um, buy companies with no intention of selling them, um, use very little debt uh, in, in the process, and um, try to treat people really well and all profit together. So where would you say that passion for business came from? As you said, you kind of accidentally bought this business, but you know, it, you must have had some interest in business at, at some point. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up being interested in business and uh, I've always liked to, uh, to play games and I mean, business kind of feels like a the hardest game, right? Most complex game in the world. And, um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was not, like I said, I was an entrepreneur before I bought the first business and, uh, um, was trying to make a go of it on that side. And uh, like everything's hard, right? I mean, starting a business is hard. Buying businesses is hard. It's just, uh, it's a matter of uh, to trying to figure out what, what niche you're going to try to carve out and um, what you think you can be the best in the world at. Gotcha. So what, what then sparked that transition from, you know, just being kind of a singular business owner to really this new age type of private equity firm that you have now? Well, I, I mean, I, I wish I could say that it was a part of a grand plan or something. I mean, it just really evolved. It was very natural. So, um, you know, after we bought the first business, I had already had a, like I said, a handful of businesses that had started. And so we were already kind of operating just by necessity as a, like kind of a hold co. 
And, um, and then we added more companies, uh, like I said, over the next, call it uh, seven, eight years um, to that portfolio. And then at some point, um, you know, we realized that we've got more demand for what we can do than we have uh, supply of capital. And so um, didn't think we'd ever be able to raise and keep our kind of competitive advantages. And um, then met this uh, incredible guy named Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who uh, coerced me into taking uh, outside capital and uh, kind of the rest is history. I like coerced too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think he talked me into taking it probably five different times. In fact, I remember uh, we were probably a month, maybe six weeks out from closing on the first fund, and I got cold feet, and he gave me a pep talk and uh, got it, got me back on the rails. So I was just I was terrified of. We had a great thing going, and I was just terrified of how it would change us, and um, you know, it turns into something that uh, we didn't want to be. So what was, what did he say then that, that really helped you kind of take you take like, all right, we'll be okay. <laughs> uh, I think you just said, you know, get your head out of your ass and don't be an idiot. And, uh, uh, you, you know, you've got a tremendous amount of people that, that uh, believe in you and, uh, uh, you know, we're, it's going to be fine. And, uh, I think it was just an emotional, emotional statement. It's, it's hard when you've done certain things, uh, for a decade and, and, you know, um, there was no oversight. There's, there's sort of, it was just us doing our thing. And, um, you know, when you add SEC scrutiny into that, you had, um, you know, um, working for investors, you know, um, I, I knew it would change us. Uh, I just, you know, I was terrified that it would change us in ways that, uh, uh were unproductive and, and thank God, uh, it has not turned out to be the case that, that it's been a bad decision. I mean, it's been, it's been a wonderful decision. We couldn't be more pleased that, uh, that we went down that path. Gotcha. So, you know, as you said, you started, you know, so the previous name from Permanent Equity, your company used to be called Adventures and, and you know, it started back in 2007, you know, what would you say was, was your, your thesis, you know, like, okay, we got all these businesses, uh, or I have this one business, we have a couple others turning into a whole coast, you know, what, what was the thesis then for, all right, now we're going to be a company that buys businesses and holds them forever, you know, what, what was that? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think so. I think uh, when you're young and you don't know, uh, you want to taste and try a lot of different things. And so we tasted and tried um, more early stage uh, creating companies, doing more early stage investments. Um, and and look, we did okay at those things as well. I mean, we incubated a successful company, um, made a couple of uh, successful uh, early stage you know uh, investments over the years. And I think what we just realized is that's just not what we're the best in the world at. Like that's just not what we have a shot at, at competing well. And you know. Want to be located in Missouri, uh, love Missouri, uh, love Columbia, where I where I live, and uh, and so it was you know what can we do from here? Where, where would Columbia? Uh, what industries would Columbia be an advantage for as opposed to a disadvantage? And uh, and then I think you know after the acquisition, that first acquisition went well. Um, it it really just led us into um, the direction that there were a lot of other companies that were out there that that needed to transition, and um, they really you know the the, the market especially. Gosh, ten years ago, um, it was a very, very nascent uh, small business acquisition market. I mean, there's more people doing it now, um, but back then, I mean, it was very few and far between. And so, um, we really, um, you know, we felt like we could be good at it. We felt like there was very few people uh, competing with us. And so, I mean, those are the, you know, sort of marks of uh, industry you want to get involved in. 
Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about that creativity at the beginning, because I'm, I'm assuming, you know, some of these businesses that I think I remember in some of your interviews, the first business you had was an events company. You know, I, I mean, we run events, so I know it can be, you know, a lot of cash flow coming in. And, you know, what kind of deals did you do in order to help the, your, your company grow then? Because I'm assuming it was probably still very difficult to just do all cash flowing deals, bring them in and just straight equity. You know, I, how did you guys get creative at the beginning? Yeah, so in the beginning, uh, the, the first deal we did um, it was uh, for a military recruitment firm uh, called Media Cross. We still own it to today. Um, and, um, you know, thank God for the SBA. I uh, used uh, the Small Business Administration, got an SBA loan, and um, did real well with that. And obviously took those cash flows, paid off the loan, and uh, rolled them forward. And then, you know, uh, over time was able to uh, build cash up and uh, redeploy it. Gotcha. So you recently actually made the name change from adventures to permanent equity. I have to ask, you know, yeah. what, what, why the change? Yeah, well, so um, uh, there's some basic rules around names. Uh, one is that uh, people should be able to say it. And we had, uh, so the adventures was with a dot in the name, uh, which is our URL. So it was a hack domain. Uh, it's the shortest domain for that name, right? Which is very prestigious and smart, uh, except if your target audience is, call it 55-year-old plus people. Uh, who have no idea what the world uh, your name looks like. And we, we got everything from uh, adventure.es. Uh, we had people asking us if we did business in the United States since we were headquartered in Spain. Um, it, it was, uh, we, we'd get our emails would sometimes get rejected by servers because it was a foreign email. I mean, just, just all kinds of uh, little, I would say there, you know, we, we did fine with the name. We loved the name and the name served as well. It was a good B2B name. I would get, you know, kind of say it that way. Um, you know, our ambition is to um, become the go-to uh, first stop for small business owners and the helpers of small business owners, um, you know, as they look to exit their business. And I think that that's going to require uh, uh, a brand that was very different than Adventures and that had a sort of much more um, traditional connotations. And I, mean, I think the defining thing about us that, that has, uh, that's so different than traditional private equity, we can go into the uh, the details of how we're different. But the big thing is, I mean, we have 27 year lock capital with no off ramps and an option to renew year 25. So, I mean, <clears throat> we're functionally permanent capital. And um, I think that's the thing we've gotten really a name for. And, and the reason why sellers choose us over, uh, over others is they don't want to be uh, flipped, right? Um, I mean, traditional private equity structure really makes it difficult to hold something for longer than about five years. Right. And so um, even if you love the private equity guys that you're dealing with as a, as a business owner, you know that they're going to sell it to somebody else in five years. And you know the thing you worked your entire lifetime, and, and a lot of these uh, businesses will employ a big chunk of the community then. Uh, the, the people they work with are like, you know, like family to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just it makes it a very difficult dynamic. So I think that's one of the things that uh, we really uh, differentiated on. And, and that was, um, for us, a, a great way to, uh, to change the name to. So permanent equity, permanentequity.com. Um, Funny story about that. How uh, so, Patrick? Uh, I kept using the term permanent equity. In fact, our funds were named Permanent Equity One and Permanent Equity Two. Right. So we already were using the name Permanent Equity. Um, we just didn't have it, you know, as the as the sort of headline name. And uh, Patrick uh, O'Shaughnessy ended up buying the PermanentEquity.com domain name after he uh, met with me whatever, four years ago. And uh, anyway, he uh, graciously uh, donated that to the cause uh, uh, as we decided to change our name. Well, I have to ask, I mean, was there like a month long panic where the team was like, wait, somebody else owns this URL. What the hell? We're going to have to go find it. And you happen to see that with somebody in New York and you're like, maybe, I don't, maybe it was Patrick. I don't know. 
<laughs> no, I knew. He, he, he'd actually told me uh, after the first time we met, he goes, you know, by the way, you kept using the term permanent equity. Uh, I really like that. Uh, I think I'm just going to buy the URL. And I was like, oh, that's cool, whatever. Oh, that's, so. that's too funny. So I, all right. So perfect segue, you know, you mentioned that, you know, there is obviously a, a lot of differences between permanent equity and traditional private equity. So let's get into that. You know, how is permanent equities investment approach different than what most everybody thinks about when they think of private equity? Yeah. So there's a couple, a uh, couple ways to go about this. So one is the size of deal that we look at. So uh, we sit below traditional private equity in size um, especially for platform acquisition. So private equity's got uh, kind of two ways they go about acquiring. One is a platform, which is kind of a new entrant into space, and then um, they can do bolt-ons underneath that, that acquisition. Um, for platforms, it's really hard for them to go under eight, $10 million a year free cash flow, just based on the two and 20 model, the size of the fund, the type of leverage they typically use. Um, it, it just becomes very problematic for them. So we like to sit in that kind of three to $8 million range mm-hmm. of earnings, free cash flow, whatever you want to use, what kind of really what sticks to the owner, right? Um, and um, the, the deals in that size, you know, they're, they're large enough to where it's hard to pass the hat at the country club and get the deal done. Um, but they're too small for traditional private equity. So there's this really just nice Goldilocks in between there. Um, and, um, and so that's where we, where we focus. Now we've got deals, we've got a couple deals right now that are 10 plus million dollar earning companies that, that we're in discussions with. Um, we will go up market opportunistically. And, and, and really what we want to see if we go up market is that the family cares deeply who they sell to and that they're choosing us over an alternative form of capital. Um, and so if you really don't want Private equity, and, and when I say private equity, so it's a it's a typically a fund structure that's got a ten year life. Um, uh, you've got to really buy stuff in the first couple, kind of two to three years, uh, work on it for kind of three to four years, and then work on selling it. Right, so that's where you get that hold period of kind of three to five years, uh, five being kind of the max. Um, typically, using quite a bit of debt. Um, you know, traditionally the model in, in private equity is the, the leverage buyout model, which is basically however much debt you can get, you you backfill with equity. And so you're typically getting uh, both senior debt and mes debt, um, and then a tiny, tiny sliver of equity that's going into these deals. Um, you're trying to do uh, typically cost reduction as a, as a pretty major component of the acquisition process, um, and um, and then you're looking to flip it. Um, and so uh, our model is just completely different in the sense that we're buying with no intention of selling the business. We're typically using no debt in our transactions, which you talk about really freaking out investment bankers, telling me you're not going to use any debt. Um, they literally, we have questions all the time, like, did you say use debt? Like, how does that work? Um, anyway, so um, we like to keep leadership in place and partner with the leadership for a long time. Um, and um, really just try to uh, introduce maybe a, a unusual set of talents and access to resources that these small businesses wouldn't have otherwise and uh, grow them into larger businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we what we do. And I mean, we try to treat people really well. Um, uh, we're not cutting benefits. We're um, now trying to grow our way to success as opposed to cutting. Mm-hmm. So in the most recent interview that you did with, I think it was the most recent one, where it was, you know, I think the headline was uh, analyzed 12,000 businesses and looked at, you guys used every single type of deal structure or at least analyzed ones that work and don't work. I mean, what do you have an experience that really helped? Because you're, you're very much in line with, you know, you have your ways in which you're going about to add a company to the portfolio. You know, did you have an experience that really guided that experience that got you to where, okay, this is how we're going to do deals or does it still evolve depending on the deal that comes through? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say we're, we're flexible in how we do deals. Um, we try not to be dogmatic about it. Um, I would say in terms of our style, though, it just evolved out of, um, I guess, kind of first principles logic. I don't I, I mean, we didn't come out of the So no one who, who works at, at uh, permanent equity has uh, ever worked at another private equity firm. And I think that's um, in some ways a positive, in some ways a negative. I mean, the, the positive is we just don't come from the background of here's here's the way you do it. Mm-hmm. So for us. Um, how did families get wealthy? Uh, they 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 operated a company over a long period of time. They they to survive. They didn't take on debt. Um, they didn't try to bite off more than they could chew. They treated people well. They built a strong culture, and they held it indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think uh, that's a pretty tried and true way of doing business. Um, I don't know why. Um, we wouldn't just follow that and do that. Um, and so I think that's that's just kind of where we come from. Is we just want to operate like a family would operate. And so how does a family operate? Well, it's how permanent equity operates. Cool. So, you know, one follow-up I did have when I, when I was doing my research and, and looking at your model and, and <clears throat> type of company permanent equity is, and, you know, look, you, you're now really well-followed. You've done all these interviews and stuff. You know, I mean, can anyone else, can anyone else create and do what you've built at permanent equity? You know, are, are there any other funds that are similar out there? Um, I mean, yeah, sure. Other people can do it. I mean, I think this, so the, the ocean uh, of opportunities is enormous. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you go down the sort of pyramid, um, as you get, you know, uh, I, I don't know exactly how many I, I, I used to be able to remember, but, you know, I think there's probably five times as many companies out there making a million dollars a year as, as are making $3 million a year. Right. And so as you can move up the chain, there's less and less companies that are, that are sort of in that size range. So the bottom of the pyramid is just enormous. I mean, um, in any mid-sized city, you'll literally have thousands and thousands of companies that are, you know, acquirable on the small end. Um, and so, um, yeah, other people can do it. I mean, it's just really hard. Like, it's not complicated what we do. It's just just really difficult. And a lot of it is uh, judgment-based. And so, I mean, the only way I think you get better at, at judgment is by doing stuff and, you know, scraping your face on the pavement and um, picking yourself back up and, and learning from it and hopefully not dying in the process. And so, I mean, I think that's, you know, the story that we have is just being intellectually honest about, you know, what our shortcomings are, trying to constantly work on those, um, constantly learning how to interact and set expectations and um, how to uh, support the companies. And, and you know, when adv- adversity strikes, uh, you know, how do you handle it? Um, what resources do you have access to and the experience level? And so, um, what I would say is that the, the difficulty, so I wrote a piece, um, I get a lot of questions about, you know, people come inbound and say, hey, I'd like to do what you do. You know, what advice do you have for me? And so I wrote a piece called uh, How to Acquire Your First Smaller Company. And it really goes through the entire process in that. I mean, it's very abbreviated, but all the things you need to know and all the questions you need to ask. And, you know, it's one of those things that on the surface, it sounds so easy and simple. It's like, I have money, right? Access to capital. How hard can it be? I'll go find a business. And I'll do the deal. And it's like, in reality, there's about 400 decisions that have to be made during the sale process. Uh, all of them are consequential, and um, you know it's it's um, uh, it's difficult to get all the pieces to line up um, in, in a way that's sustainable. And oh, by the way, once you get to the finish line, it's really the starting line, right? You you close the deal. Okay, great. Now you own the asset. Mm-hmm. Um, now what do you do with it, right? Yeah. And and um, you know a lot of these, you know, as you get on the smaller end, these businesses are pretty lightweight. Um, there's, there's not a lot of redundancy in leadership and, um, 
you know, so you got you just got a lot of different types of risks, and that's why they go for you know considerably cheaper than upmarket companies. I mean, this is maybe one of the misconceptions that people have is because of the size of the company is necessarily dictating um, the the sort of multiple average multiple people would pay. And, and yes, size is a good proxy for heft and complexity. But I would say that um, the real reason why uh, these companies you know, sell for cheaper is just because they're really risky, difficult businesses to operate post-close. And so, I mean, you know, if you go out and buy an index fund of every small business in the, you know, in the market, um, you just go to zero. I mean, you just get smoked. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just uh, it, it's a very unusual market. I mean, what I love about it is it's uh, highly inefficient, which means you can either make or lose a lot of money. And um, you know, skill matters. And so I think that's where we're constantly. I mean, we're I don't know, 12, 13 years in now, and I still feel like we're maybe a three out of 10 on the skill level. Uh, we've got a long ways to go. <laughs> three out of 10, I mean, on which skills? I mean, it... <laughs> on, on almost everything. I mean, every single time we do a deal, we learn so much. And, um, um, you know, it's unbelievable the accumulation of knowledge. I think that's another thing that makes this unusual is we have a lot of in-house resources. So there's 16 full-time people at uh, I say adventures. Look at that. I, I'm still, it took, it, you know, it took me a, over a decade to groove that into my mind. So um, that permanent equity and, um, and, and really that locks in a lot of the learnings and due diligence uh, is a big piece of what we do. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to constantly, you know, learn and, and get better at, you know, how are we sourcing deals? Uh, how do we repel the wrong people and attract the right people? Um, you know, when we negotiate a deal, how do we set expectations where the owner maybe has to hear some hard truth, but we also say it in a loving, kind way. And it's really difficult to balance all those things. Um, when you get into diligence, I mean, we have a 22, 23 page checklist that we customize for every, uh, acquisition. Um, you gotta answer all those questions. It's brutal. It's really, really hard. Um, there's a lot of nuance and, you know, um, you don't want to be cynical, but there's a lot of things that these people don't know even about their own business, and some stuff they do know that they don't want to tell you about, um, because every business has warts on it. I mean, there's, there's, I guarantee there's skeletons in every closet, um, mm-hmm. and so you know it's our job to, to figure those out and to make sure that we're making a, a good, uh, uh, a good purchase in terms of understanding what we're buying. Um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, I think in absolute terms, we still got a, a long ways to go, and then post close, I mean, uh, businesses are ever changing, ever evolving. Um, you know, how do you acquire customers? How do you uh, how do you service them appropriately? How do you build brand? How do you build systems? Um, how do you you know keep compliance in order? I mean, it's just it's a business is hard. Business is really hard. And I think maybe for your listeners that are that are more public investors, um, you know, if you if you don't think a business is messy and difficult. Um, you just don't know enough. You're, you're too far removed from it. And I think that's where you know, all businesses are loosely functioning disasters that happen to make money, um, even the largest ones. I mean, what's come out about GE as an example that was the golden child for decades, right? I mean, they're a loosely functioning disaster. All businesses are. These small businesses are loosely functioning disasters that have a very thin layer of ship. And I think that's just an added uh, additional uh, risk factor that um, whether it's public or private, I mean, a lot of the businesses we look at are um, sort of in the same proxy as the microcap space, um, and I can tell you, they are uh, messy and difficult. I was going to say, I, we have a famous phrase in microcaps is that most of them just have hair. It, it sounds like it's almost yeah. very similar to what yep. you're doing. I mean, I have to ask. I mean, you're, it, it seems like there's just you'd be stressed a lot. You know that there's a, this is a, <laughs> this is a very stressful thing that you do. I mean, why? Like, what? What? What got you where you're like, you know, I really, I, I, I 
really want to do this. I'm very passionate about all these different businesses. Is it that you have a curiosity sure. for learning and 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 wanting to understand all these different industries and businesses and and thinking and and obviously thinking that you can help and provide value? But is that it? Yeah, I mean, uh, so I would say is everything's hard though, right? I sure. Mean, very, very, I would assume public investing is hard. Um, I mean, everyone's got uh, difficulties in their lives. I mean, I think that getting um, up in the morning. I wouldn't do. Huh? I have a newborn, but, yeah, that's a, exactly. that, but that's why. <laughs> hey, uh, I've got five, three, and one, so uh, I'm right there with you, brother. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the tact I've taken is do what you love in a place that you enjoy with people you admire, right? Those are the kind of the three criteria that I try to evaluate things by. And, um, you know, permanent equity is a place where I want to work. Um, it's a place where we can, um, you know, paint on our own canvas and, and we can do things that we want to do it. Um, maybe not the way that everyone else does it, but the way that makes sense to us. And uh, yeah, it's hard. Uh, there's a lot of bad news constantly. I mean, we have people getting sick and um, we have uh, people that unfortunately have lost in the last year um, in, in the companies. And um, there's always conflicts that will, that will pop up. I mean, again, business is messy. People are messy. Um, it's hard. Um, but I would say is, you know, if you're not doing something that's challenging, if you just, if sort of like your main focus in life is um to just accumulate more and more comfort and security, it would be a pretty shallow existence that you live. Um, and I think that we're called to get in there and mix it up and uh, um, you know try to try to be a shining light and try to help people flourish. I mean, uh, over time, I mean that's what our goal is: just to help people flourish. We want the the companies to flourish financially, of course, but I think that it starts with people flourishing. And are we doing this perfectly? Absolutely not. Uh, we've got a tremendous amount of room for improvement. Um, we're always trying to understand um, sort of what we can do as an organization to support people better and um, uh, help us all win together. Got it. You know, so so now I want to dig a little bit into, you know, permanent equities, credo and, and your investment criteria. We, co- we covered it a little bit, but, you know, I, I, sure. I, I really want to kind of get a full answer there. So, you know, as it states on your website, your investment approach, boring is beautiful. You know, what? <laughs> why does the company believe in this credo and You know, I'm going to ask this a little nuance. You know, would you say it's, you know, obviously, you know, everybody, most of the people who've listened to this read Peter Lynch and, you know, Warren Buffett and love boring businesses, you know, but do you also, I I mean, the types of businesses you're also looking at, these are like classic Midwest blue collar type businesses, you know, they're not the, some, some, some are, some are, you know, but but you know, you're not, they're not your, your, you know, uh, West coast, uh, you know. I don't know if you have a cryptocurrency and if you're evaluating one at, at any time. But, <laughs> but, but. Not, not even cryptocurrency, we, but our last two acquisitions were in Los Angeles, so uh, in the aerospace business. So oh, I mean, we, we, uh, we're, we're coast to coast in terms of, uh, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of great businesses everywhere. What's boring about aerospace? That's freaking cool. I mean, that might just be me. It, it, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> here's the thing is the boring, boring as a term is uh, so. When properly understood, we like boring because it serves a purpose. It's faithful to its customers. Um, it's not the latest sexy hot thing. Sure. Um, boring in many ways is a, is a huge compliment uh, when we say it, right? Um, of course. And when we say you know boring in aerospace, I mean uh, the the company is Pack Air and Air Cert of the of the two companies out there, um, and they uh, work to uh, keep planes in the air by uh, certifying parts, finding hard to get parts. Uh, and supplying them to their customers. So, I mean, it looks like a warehouse and a lot of different parts, and it looks like people that are trying to serve customers uh, faithfully by by getting them the right parts and making sure that the planes can stay in the air. Um, most people would go into that warehouse and be like, this is pretty boring, right? I mean, you're picking stuff off the uh, shelves, you're putting more stuff off the shelves, you're selling it. Um, 
uh, for us, we think it's beautiful. Um, and so um, we, we just don't want to get involved in things that are the sort of the, the next hot fad or trend. I mean, crypto is a great example of that. Um, when we were raising our first fund, um, as funny as this sounds, uh, we had so many investors say, well, why would I put my money you know, with you all when uh, I can put it into crypto and it just goes up? And I was like, that's a great that's a great way to think about it. I would encourage you to invest in crypto. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, yeah, we just want to, we want to, we want to get involved in things that are what we call kind of main street businesses. Um, and, uh, and they really run the game. And I mean, I would say all of our businesses are super sexy to us. Um, but just most people would, you know, if you, if you told them what you did in a bar, they'd probably say, Oh, that's interesting. You certify airplane parts. Like, huh, cool. Uh, all right, moving on. Right. <laughs> I feel like that's that's like every conversation I have with, you know, I'm in LA, everybody I have, it's a lot of construction and all that stuff. I say I'm in financial news, they're like, uh, financial news. Interesting. <laughs> exactly. So, but you're, you, know how, you know how it goes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So, so then let's dive through really quick. You know, what, what is permanent equities uh, investment criteria when you're looking for a business to bring onto the portfolio? Into yeah, so we, we like to see things that uh, that are $3 million plus in what we call owner earnings. So uh, EBITDA minus kind of a CapEx proxy, sort of normalized capital expenditures, uh, any operating interest, uh, normalized owner compensation. Um, so really kind of what sticks to the owner at the end of the day. Um, we, uh, you know, we have certain industries we, we have kind of more of a prejudice against. So we, you know, we're not big into oil and gas. Um, we think restaurants are really hard business. Um, healthcare is, you know, highly regulated businesses. We're, we're less interested in those. Um, and over time, again, these, these may change, right? We may bring on a partner that has deep healthcare, you know, background or something like that and, and change our profile. But right now, um, we're willing to look at any industry. We like to find things that are um, sort of niched into an area of the market that maybe uh, is overlooked. Um, I mean, you know, you've got some industries that, you know, like the wine business, as an example, would be a, it's a terrible business to invest in when you just, uh, like a winery, right? Um, but the, you know who makes the 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 corks and who makes the bottles and who makes the wrappers and who makes the shipping containers and um, who makes the you know uh, testing equipment uh, for the for the wine industry and you know all those things right like there's there's all these like little interesting niches in all these industries and so what we like to do is we like to find businesses that are um, in those little niches and that we can kind of understand where they're competitively positioned. And um, that they're durable, and that the the, the customers uh, appreciate them, uh, and and want to continue to use them for a long time. Got it. So so my quick follow up to that too is you know I you know the firm's now been around 12, 12, 13 years. You know, has there ever been a fear of the you're looking at potential businesses to bring into the portfolio? You know, now that you've been around for this long, you've done these interviews, you published the book where you literally gave the checklist on how to do this. You know. Um, <laughs> Has there ever been a fear sure. that, you know, you almost, because of all, you've ever priced yourself out of a potential purchase, like, ah, oh, that business fit all of our criteria, but their asking price is just a little outside of our range that we would normally do? Yeah, I mean, we, I'd say the, the dominant reason why we turn down a lot of businesses we're interested in is we just can't get to price, uh, price and terms, right? I mean, um, and, and it, you know, sort of unlike the public markets, price is just one of our levers. I mean, the terms, terms almost matter more than the price. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is very common. I mean, people, uh, you know, everyone thinks their house is worth more than it really is. Right. Um, the endowment effect is rampant everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so this is something that you've built for 20, 30, 50 years. Um, you're going to think it's worth a ton. You're going to know all the risks and you're going to be comfortable with all the risks. And any buyer is going to look at those risks and say, no, wait a minute. I, uh, I don't know. Right. Um, I would say our biggest competitor is somebody not selling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not somebody else coming in and buying it, especially the companies that we really like to work with that care deeply who buys the business. I mean, we've I got two of these right now that we've been in discussions with one for two years and one for four years, four or five years. And, um, you know, it's about every six months we dance with them and, you know, they get cold feet and we back away. And it's not like anybody else is coming in to buy those companies. It's just a matter of, um, you know, the family saying, hey, we want to, you know, want to kind of keep it the way it is. And it's really hard. I mean, these businesses make a lot of money and, uh, you, you know, if you're always going to make more money not selling your business and keeping operating it. So it's just, you know, at a certain point, though, the business goes into secular decline. You have a health issue. Uh, hits you know hits a hiccup and you're not there to be able to support it and it it you know usually unfortunately that's how a lot of businesses go under. Gotcha. So as I said at the beginning of this interview, you know I recently saw the interview that you did live with Morgan Housel at the uh, Microcap Leadership Summit. Um, you know, and there was a couple quotes that you said that I wanted to for you to elaborate on that I I really they stuck with me. And sure. First, I say a lot of dumb stuff, so hopefully they're not those well, things. But yeah. Well, you know what I, I I have a lower IQ anyway, so you know I maybe. <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> so, so this first one that you said is, uh, and this actually has to do with something that you said earlier and, and wanted you to, to elaborate on is uh, you said, don't cost cut as value creation mechanism. You know, underspending sometimes can be the case. Sometimes you want to help them being the companies that you, you want to bring in the portfolio. Realize that spending a dollar can result in $3 more down the road rather than $1 less in their pocket. You know, so I, I, that really stuck with me and I, I really loved when you said that. So can you elaborate a little bit more on it? Yeah, I would say so. So, if you think about the small business mindset, um, you know, the the, the uh, there's no agency problem, right, with small business owners. I mean, they're operating the business, they own the business, <clears throat> so literally every dollar they spend is a dollar less in their pocket, right. right? And they feel it that way. And so, when it comes to things like marketing, sales, investments in technology, um, it, they have a tough time making those those investments that would certainly pay dividends. Um, but one, they, they don't have the skill set to do it. Two, they, they've never seen it done before. And three, you know, sort of there, there's a lot of just fat and happy syndrome that goes on. And so we'll oftentimes come to these businesses and say, now, wait a minute, if we did this, um, you know, here's the, the return on invested capital. Here's the payback period, all these different things, you know, ways you can show sort of what the what the, the return would be. And they say, yeah, that's OK. And, you know, you know, we were like, why? Right. And and the answer is always a little bit different. But ultimately, it's some combination of don't know, uh, you know, uh, don't care um, or um, just a fundamental lack of. uh, I think this is maybe symptomatic of a lot of uh, larger issue, which is the talent pool of these smaller companies is fairly limited. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, you know, a lot of the consultants that work in these in these industries um, and these size of companies, I should say, are just not good at what they do. I don't know how else to say it. Um, and so if you're a marketing person, right, you, 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 you know, marketing consultancy or advertising consultancy, um, you're going to work with a local plumbing firm versus you're going to work with Coca-Cola, right? What, what type of talent are you going to be attracted to, right? So, so basically the only people who continue to work with um, sort of local small businesses are people who don't know what they're doing by definition. Or if they didn't know what they were doing, they would be able to acquire larger and larger customers and do better and better for themselves. And so, you know, we will oftentimes have people come in and say, well, marketing doesn't work. And it's like, well, yeah, actually, you're right for for who, you know, and the resources you have access to marketing doesn't work. 
Um, now I can tell you that marketing as a, as a principle does work and advertising, you can get a return on your investment. Um, and and um, it's a great way to, to build a moat around a business. It's a great way to build a business. Um, but you have to have access to the talent. You have to know what you're doing. And, and unfortunately, those people are just not the people who are going to rise to the top of, of uh, the consultancy pool and for small businesses, as well as the people inside the companies. Gotcha. All right. So so the other quote that you said there it, that I, I would love to you know kind of get the difference between is that, you know, you... You talked about the difference between hustles and businesses, you know, so can you, <laughs> yeah. so I, and I know, I actually think you talked about this on another podcast, but you know, I'd love to get your, your thoughts again, you know, yeah. really the big difference there. Yeah. So, so we, we use this terminology internally. Uh, a hustle is a business that, and these, by the way, these things can be big. Like we saw a $15 million hustle recently. This is, this is two brothers making $15 million a year. So <laughs> like these guys are killing it. Um, these hustles can get very big, but if you pull them out, um, the whole business collapses, right? Mm-hmm. And, and all of the equity value of the business is tied up in their relationships and their expertise. Um, and it's just, they're the linchpin of everything. And so, you know, a hustle is unsustainable. It's uh, sort of a temporary thing um, versus a business is sustainable. You've got decision-making that's been pushed down in the organization. You've got a diversity of relationships. You have uh, systems and processes that can um, build repeatable value in the firm. Um, so it's, it's, I mean, look, there's a, there's a fine line sometimes between a business and a hustle. And I think that you can, obviously all businesses started off as hustles and then made a transition. Um, so we're, we're kind of towing that line sometimes, um, but we like to buy our businesses and not hustles. Gotcha. And, you know, by the way, I was just thinking back to an earlier question. You know, I I wanted to make sure it was clear that there was no implication (laughs) that the Midwest or Missouri, anything about that is boring. Okay, it is an amazing place. I can't wait to visit. And again, congratulations on the Kansas City Chiefs winning. You know, so uh, that that was a big deal. You know, that was a huge deal. Yeah. So, so you know, this is a question that I I, I really wanted to ask you. You know, being a family man, you got three kids. You know, and and just you know all the work that goes into what you do at Permanent Equity. What would you say is the most difficult part of your job? Hmm. I mean, it's always going to be people related, right? Um, I mean, um, it's always going to be the conflicts that just naturally come up. I mean, we all um, uh, think we're way more important than we are, me included. Um, we all think that we contribute more to success and have less to do with failure than we really do. Um, I mean, just the, the whole world and our uh, the way we're designed, we're just set up for uh, conflict, right? And, and so I would say is having to... Um, uh, get involved in situations where there's a lot of bad behavior sometimes. Uh, I mean, a, a portfolio the size we are and all the people that are involved, um, there's just going to be uh, unfortunate situations that pop up and trying to, um, you know, be wise and thoughtful and loving in tough circumstances is something that I uh, try to do, uh, fail often at, and I have to apologize uh, uh, frequently for. Um, but I think that, you know, the hardest part of my job is just, you know, seeing people that have made uh, bad decisions, or just has some unfortunate consequences of uh, circumstances that have come up, and uh, you know how do you muddle through it? And just some stuff just is hard, and a lot of stuff's just really hard. And you know, um, try and do it with uh, with a little bit of grace, but um, it's always going to be people, always. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, what what would you then say to investors who focus on investing in public companies? What can they really learn from your investing approach? Boy, I don't know if they if they can learn a lot. Um, unfortunately, I mean, this may be the the, the dead end of our uh, <clears throat> of our podcast here, but um, 
you know, I think many of the principles are are similar in terms of how you select. I mean, you're looking for things that have a sort of durable competitive advantage. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to buy them at a price where you feel like that there's upside with it. Um, you know, I, I think the micro cap space is probably the last frontier of the public markets that you can actually generate uh, real sustainable alpha over time. Um, I think it's really, really challenging. I mean, I know a lot of people to play up market from you all, and um, it's crazy how many smart, highly technologically advanced and um, incredible competitors there are, right? I think in the microcap space, you're protected a little bit for the same reasons we're protected, right? I mean, we chose our segment of that three to eight million dollar range uh, for a reason, and I think it's because um, you know it, it's it, we've got a sort of a Goldilocks protection in that in that segment. So I would say you know it, it's smart to it, as long as you've got sort of the curse of success, but as long as you've got a little enough amount of capital where you can play successfully in the uh, micro cap space, which is still, I mean, for an individual is a heck of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you want to try to raise capital and build a business, um, it, it's more difficult, but, um, I think there's plenty of good hunting in that area. I mean, I, um, I think there's gonna be a, a, a challenge in the future, uh, of what companies go public and stay public. I think you have a lot of the smaller micro caps or sort of legacy businesses that have been around for a long time. Um, and I, I just I don't know many people who want to take something public these days. So it, you know it's just I'm I'm hoping that regulation changes and that that, that there's um, uh, more freedom and and just making it more attractive to take things public. I think there's a lot of returns that are being if you're not playing in the private markets these days, I think you're leaving a lot of returns on the table and it's just it's very high barrier to entry. It's very difficult to get involved in. Um, so I mean I, I would say uh, what lessons can be can be you know uh, ported over is just you know, doing the, doing the hard work and really analyzing the companies, making sure that you don't take somebody's word for it, doing your own primary research. I mean, these are all the things that we do in due diligence in the back of the book, um, uh, the messy marketplace. I mean, we have that checklist. I think that checklist is a pretty good checklist for the public markets. Um, I, I know a few guys have used it that way. And um, I mean, a lot of those questions you probably can't answer, which is probably a good indication of how well do you know the business. Um, you know, the more that you can spend time with the leadership of these companies, I mean, I don't know, it depends on the size and style of the investors, but I think it's really important to spend time with people and to understand sort of what makes them tick, what motivates them. Um, yeah, I don't know. Gotcha. Well, you know, it's okay. I won't have a follow-up to that one, even though, you know, it wasn't dead. There's more there for sure. But, but, you know, <laughs> I, I asked you this question about what's the most difficult part of the business. I don't want to be a downer. What's the most fun part of the business too? Oh yeah, I mean it's also people. Um, getting getting to meet the people, and go. I mean it's it's the best and worst. Um, uh, we get to meet. Um, look, I, I I live a charmed and and uh, um, uh, <laughs> it's a gift uh, the life I lead. Um, getting to uh, getting to fly around the country, meet people who are uh, passionate about all different kinds of business. Um, who you know uh, on average just love their families, love their communities. Um, just we get to interact with some really great people. And so, um, yeah, ultimately that's, uh, I'd say that's the, that's the basis too. Cool. So, you know, uh, I, this is a question that's my favorite question to ask everybody that I have on, you know, and, and you touched on this a little bit already, but what, what investing experience would you say has impacted your career the most? Investing experience. Um, I would say, um, having a lot of failures has probably been the most instructive. I mean, <clears throat> operating companies is so much more difficult than it appears. 
And it, it, to be an investor without that experience, I just don't know how you do it. I mean, I think your 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 intent would be all off in terms of what you think's hard is actually not that hard, and what you think is easy is is brutally difficult. And so um, I'm just really grateful that I had the experiences of running companies myself and being in an operating role and having to make payroll and feeling the pressures of, um, you know, customers bearing down on you and employee issues and just understanding how uh, <clears throat> complex and challenging day-to-day -day life is as an operator um, certainly has made me a far better investor and um, far more relatable to what we do. Um, I, I, if I just... If I pick stocks for a living, I just don't think I'd have the the empathy and the experience to understand um, sort of what's really going on in the, in the trenches. Gotcha. So then, you know, as as we close out the interview here, you know, I I want to know what what advice would you have for either new investors, either I guess in general, you know, looking at public markets or even wanting to start up something like what you got at Permanent Equity. Yeah, I would say take it slow. Um, so one of the things I think that is the, the most dangerous is um, sort of newcomer syndrome of feeling like you, you're an expert after a couple months of doing something or even a couple of years. I mean, look, we toiled away in obscurity for the better part of a decade um, and got our ass kicked repeatedly uh, in all kinds of ways. And and through that, we were able to hone and, and, and it's not like we're perfect now. We're still learning uh, a ton on an ongoing basis. But I I can't even imagine it. What would what would things have looked like if if we had had you know access to a bunch of capital when we were first getting going? Um, you know, there's there's some people that I know that are you know raising vehicles right now that are you know, going to try to put to work a bunch of money and they've never done it before. They're probably smarter than I am, and they'll probably be fine. But I, I just would have gotten smoked. So uh, I would say, if you're a public investor, just take it slow. You're like you don't need to get rich fast. Like um, be sustainable, learn. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, pride before the fall, as soon as you feel like that, you really know what you're talking about. Um, you're probably, uh, on the precipice of, of a pretty big disaster. So stay humble. Gotcha. All right. Well, with that, Brent, where can my audience go and find more information about you and permanent equity? Yep. Yeah. So the website is just permanentequity.com. Um, I'm, uh, probably the most available on Twitter. Um, uh, I try to check Twitter, I don't know, three or four times a day. Uh, my DMs are open. Uh, I'm at Brent Bishore on Twitter. And, uh, you know, you got to put up with some bad uh, private equity memes and dad jokes. And uh, I, I guess I, I should note that my highest uh, achieving tweet of all time is a, a, a Taylor Swift joke I made last night. So I got that going for me. All right. Well, what was Swifties it? Now they're followers. Wait, we got to hear it. What was it? No, I, I, no, I just I, 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 I it, some people were putting like the seven albums that you know me by, and I put the seven Taylor Swift albums. <laughs> that would be how you know me. And uh, now I've got like uh, you know a worldwide following of, of Swifties now that are that are uh, they're going to be up for a, a very rude awakening when they realize that it's a uh, you know bad private equity memes and bad jokes is what they've got in their future. So, well, you know what? They're just hoping that eventually there's going to be another Taylor Swift joke and or meme eventually. I'll lace one in there somehow. So anyway, hey, I really appreciate the interview. It's been fun. Brent, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time and I know you're busy. So thank you again. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Brent, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast, iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast, or go on to Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll our next guest to discuss all things investing. If you have any questions or comments, please send me an email, 
to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.